pray while they're figuring that out. Lord, we just thank for this day. We thank for all of the opportunity to come before you and to worship you and look at your word. We ask you to go ahead and lead in all that we do and, and read in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 68. We've got about... 86. All right. I'll go with 86, too. 86. Seems like that's what I was looking at in my Bible. <laughs> First one. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am, am holy. You, O you, my God, save my, your servant that trusts in you. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto you daily. Re, rejoice the soul of your servant, for unto you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all that call upon you. Give ear, O God, O Lord, unto my prayer and attend to my voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call on you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto you, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You are God alone. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, and with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the lowest hell. O Lord, the proud are risen against me, and the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. O turn unto me and have mercy upon me. Give your strength unto your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a token for good that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. All right, so this is David's, a prayer of David for strength, for guidance. We made it through verse five last time, so we're gonna come back to six. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer and attend unto the voice of my supplication. This is David just, just asking God to listen. How many times do we find ourselves in a place where we just feel like God is not listening to us for whatever reason it might be? Sometimes because of the sin in our life, sometimes because we're far from him. And God tells us if there's sin in our, if, we're, if we are, have sin in our heart that we're dwelling on, that he basically will ignore us. Uh, he tells husbands if they're not living right with their wives, then he won't listen to them. He won't answer their prayers. And oftentimes we will feel like we're saying words and they're bouncing to the ceiling and getting no further. And here David's saying, God, please listen to me. Listen to my supplications, my desires. This is a prayer that we need to pray sometimes. But it, if we're feeling we need to pray this prayer, we also need to look at our life and say, why am I feeling this way? What in my, what in my life have I not confessed to him? What area of my life am I not living the way I know that I should be living and 
we've probably all experienced it, as I said. And there's times when we pray and we just know that God is paying attention and listening. And at least I've been there at times where I pray and it's like, God, how come my prayers aren't going anywhere higher than the ceiling? And we've probably all been there. And here David is in that position. He's got so much trouble, he doesn't feel like God is listening. And, we're, and he's saying, attend. He says, in the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, you, for you will answer. Hopefully we're praying to him in other times other than our troubled times. This is, this is something that happens frequently with people that they, they go before God and they pray to him. And it's, it is said in certain ways, you know, I've tried everything else, I might as well pray. Have you ever said that or heard it said? Probably more heard it said. I've, tried, I've done everything I can, let me, we, we should pray. And that's not the way we should be. We should be putting God first in everything. But we tend to do this often in our lives. You know, God, you just kind of stay there. I'm doing this on my own. And then we get to the end of our rope and we're going, oh, I forgot to pray or I should have prayed or God, I, I can't do anything more. Let me pray. And this is something that David is even saying this at this point. He's in a, he's in a, in a bad place. He's got enemies all around him. And all of a sudden he says, well, maybe I should pray. And he says, for you will answer. When I pray to God in my troubles, in my straits, in my distress, God will answer. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God wants to answer us? That's, if we go back to verse 5, it says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, plenteous, plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon you. This is the amazing thing. When we look at the God we follow, he wants to answer. He wants to have fellowship with us. We've talked about this before. Do you realize how unusual this is if you look at other religions? Most religions don't have a God who wants to give mercy, wants to give grace. Most of the Eastern religions where it's, you know, where you believe in reincarnation, you get to keep trying until you get it right. And then maybe if you get it going enough times, you'll get God who wants to listen, you know, get to a place where God wants to listen to you. Well, you keep so, coming back until you get it right, you know, so it's... But this is the point that God is making with us. He wants to have fellowship with us. In the Garden of Eden, he came on the cool of the evening and walked with Adam and Eve every day. He wants to spend time with us. He's made us his children. He's made us the bride of Christ, where we're going to be one with Christ for eternity. This is very different, and I really want to stress how different Christianity is than everything else. He's not saying, well, when you get good enough, I will spend time with you. Because he knows we'll never be good enough. He doesn't say, when you've done, it, when you've done enough petitions with me, I will listen. He sent Jesus to die for us so that we can have that relationship with him. And believe me, if you study the other religions, it's not that way. Even with Judaism, it's not that way. They don't really see God as that friendly God for the most part, especially not Orthodox Jews. You know, they spend all their time trying to live the right life so that God can be pleased with them, offer enough sacrifices in the scripture until God can be pleased with them. 
And we know that God, and David understands this to a degree, God, come to me. God, give me that relationship. Very special. And it says in verse 8, For among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto your works. He's telling, telling God, you know, there's nobody like you. And this is what I'm trying to really bring out to us. There's nobody like our God. Nobody like our God. He wants, he loves us. He wants to have fellowship with us. He wants to have fellowship with us. Have you thought about that? That he wants to love you. He wants to be with you. He wants to have our presence. And I'm just I'm really trying to emphasize, I don't know how much any of you have ever looked at any other religion, but they all have that same thing in common. You have to earn your position to talk to the God. You have to earn your position to, to be there. I watched the Muslim prayer on, uh, at the prisons on Fridays, and these guys go through a whole bunch of ceremonies before they even kneel down to pray. And it's kind of funny watching because they're waving their hands and doing this and looking this way, looking that way, repeating words. And then they finally get to bow down on their, on their prayer rugs. That's, that's Muslims, you say? The Muslims. What are they doing? Ritual. The rituals to, to try to please their God. It's, it's an amazing thing to watch. There's hand motions, and they got to do all these things. And it's the same thing every week, so I know it's ritual that they're doing to prepare themselves to come and give their prayer to Allah, which isn't, we wouldn't even consider it prayer because it's the same, they do the same things when they're bowed down and say the same things. So they're not even what we would consider praying, presenting a, an honest talk with God. So again, we have something different. The scriptures in the New Testament says that God doesn't want us doing vain repetition. This is one of the problems I have when, when we get together with some of the more ecclesiastic churches that every Sunday you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, you know, and they repeat it, and nobody's thinking about what in word they're saying. It's just a ritual that they're following, and that's a vain repetition of what they're, what they're doing. The, the Jews get together, and they, the priestly prayer is spoken, and and many of these things, and they're, and they're just ritual. If we do enough things that God has told us to do, he will listen to us. And God is saying to us, come before him and just give him praise. Give him our request, our supplications. The idea that we can come into the presence and the throne room of God is very different than any other religion out there. That God says, come, come. You're my children, you're my bride. Come into my presence. The Sunday school was studying Esther this morning. Esther came before the king, and it was death to come before the king without being called unless he accepted you. She was very nervous because she hadn't been called by the king for over 30 days. There was a great fear in her heart. You know, does he still love me? Does he still care about me? You know, if I come, is he going to accept me because he loves me, or is he going to have me executed? Can you imagine the joy in her heart when he held out that scepter of acceptance? to be able to give her petition and ask her to give her the petition. We don't even have to have that nervousness. When we go before God, he says, come. Right? When I think about the, the access we have to God, I think about when JFK was, 
was president and he told his advisors that his kids could come to him even in the Oval Office because he was their dad. They did not need to make an appointment through the secretaries you know, and, and find out whether they could or could not enter in. He says they, he told them they could come in because he was dad. And he placed his being a dad as a higher importance than anything that could be going on for this country. We have that kind of access with God. Abba Father, our dad, we can come into his presence of his throne room at any time, no matter what he's doing, and he's always got time for us, which you know, is again a little far, you know, stretching it a little bit beyond, but he makes time. God is different from all the other gods out there. He wants us. He paid the price for us to be able to come to him and he did it, and this is the thing that, and I've said this over and over, and it amazes me, and it ama always amazes me. He created us knowing the price he was going to have to pay to redeem us. It was not a surprise to him when Adam and Eve fell and sinned. He had already know, known that they would. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had gotten together, and they're going to go, we're going to create these, these people. They're going to sin, and we're going to buy them back. None of us would have done that. I guarantee none of us would have done that. You know, especially when you think about the cost that we talked about this morning. God poured his wrath upon the sun. All of his anger was poured out on the sun, who was innocent. Bad enough if he deserved it, and yet he didn't, and he poured his wrath on him because he became sin, then turned his back on him for a period of time. Three hours. At least three hours, if not more. At least three hours. And as I said this morning, I've never really thought about it except for the last couple of weeks. The, the Father paid just as much price as Jesus did in many ways. To have to cause pain to his son, and a loving father does not do that unless, no, unless they know they have to. See what he went through. And to see what he was going through, and then to turn his back on him. That fellowship, that broken fellowship, was not just Jesus with that broken fellowship. The Father felt the pain of that broken fellowship as well. This is a wonderful difference from every other way that Satan throws out there for coming to God. You know, all the others are false, and they're all ones that will not lead to God because it all depends upon what good we can do, basically. That or the other extreme is to ignore God, there is no God, and just you know, forget them all together. That's also out there. We need to understand how special our relationship is. It, to me, it is the one thing that tells us that we follow the one true way to God because it is so different from everything else out there. And we've talked about this. Satan has multiple lies for every truth that God gives. God has a truth. There is one way to him that's through Jesus Christ. Satan throws out thousands of other religious ideas out there, all of them based upon do more good than bad, or just ignore there's no God at all. We need to understand David understood this. There's only God, and he is so different from everybody else. In Psalm 51, he said, 
Restore unto me the joy of my salvation when he had finally confessed his sin of, of adultery and murder. He finally, after over a year's period of time, commit, admits it and then he says, Restore to me. Have you ever been where you needed God to restore your joy of your salvation? Because you've been so guilty and walked away from him long enough that you needed to come to him finally and say, I need you to restore what you gave me. And the good news is he's right there ready to restore him when we come to admit that we need him. 1 John 1, 9, if we can face our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And that is not a verse about salvation. Once we, are accepted, once we accept Jesus Christ, we are saved. We are going to heaven. We can lose our fellowship with him with sin in the way, but we're going to go to heaven because we accepted him as long as you did truly accept him. And I've seen many people who've wandered around for a long time. We see them at the jail a lot of times. There's a number of men who are just, they're actually praising God that they went to jail because it finally made them come to the end of their rope. And the sad thing is, many times parents don't let their kids come to the end of the rope. They'll do everything they can to help that child from hitting the bottom. And sometimes we need to hit bottom for us to be able to say, God, I need you. And as long as there's a support system to keep us from hitting bottom, sometimes we don't come to God. We as parents need to understand that if we've raised our children correctly, God's going to take them to however low they have to go into the, into the pit to turn back to him. Now, I will tell you, it's hard on us parents to let our kids go that far down. It's not easy to watch our kids wallowing in the, in the, in the sewer and the trash and and having a hard time, but sometimes that's what's needed to get back. Hopefully they don't have to go that far down, but sometimes that is what's needed. It's never easy to watch your child go the wrong direction, knowing what they're gonna go through. But the sad thing is most of us and most people in general have to learn things the hard way. Very few people can, be, can learn from other people's experiences and even when you're learning from other people's experiences, it's never quite as real to you as when you go through uh, yourself. And if it was, we'd just read the Bible and we'd never have to make a single mistake again because we'd just go, oh, Abraham made this mistake, uh, David's birth, David did this mistake, don't do it. And yet we do the same things they did even though we're supposed to learn from what they did. Usually it's selfishness, so I don't feel hurt. I'm trying to keep them from getting hurt. And it goes back to the same thing with discipline. We don't want to hurt our children, which may keep them from making a mistake later on. And so we try our hardest to keep them from being hurt. And some of it is because we've been there. We've done what they're doing, and we watch them and go, and, don't do this, it's dumb, you don't want to do this. And they go, well, who are you to tell me? You know, it's, all of this comes down to, it is a tough thing to do. And you know, God has a great advantage. He knows the beginning from the end, so he already knows the best route for us to take. But God uses tough love frequently with us, puts us in a bind that we have to turn to him for, because he wants us to turn to him. And if that means tearing everything else out of our life so that we'll come to him, He'll let that happen because he understands that he wants us to be truly dependent on him by choice. He's not trying to make us dependent on him 
by force. He wants us to choose to be dependent on him. Does and he know what we're going to do later on? If, and he knows that we're going to stumble probably on the way. And so he knows this. And I, that's what really is like. Really tough. I wish I would, I would know what he wants me to do because then I wouldn't do what it's not. That is out of the path. You know, we say that all the time, but you know it's not true because there's times when we know what he wants us to do because we've read what he wants us to do and we read what he, what he tells us to do and we still don't do it right. And believe me, I know this is a fact because I've counseled a lot of young people who will tell me, well, I think God wants me to marry this person. Are they saved? No, God does not want you to do that. He tells you not to do it. And then they go and do it anyway and go through all the pain and suffering that it brings their way. How many times has God told us to tell the truth and what do we do when it doesn't look like the truth is the best avenue? We go, God, I know you're supposed to me to tell the truth, but I don't see how it's going to keep me out of trouble, so I'm going to lie. A white lie. <laughs> a white lie. A little, a little lie. Not a, not a great big whopping. But do you see what I'm saying? But Father would say, you have a good memory when you lie because you better have uh, remember your lie and, and the cover-up and all the fields with it because the truth will find its way. One lie leads to ten more. Usually, but, right, no, right. they're great. And you end up uh, white, black, one of forgetting the, the alibi or the story. Yeah. <laughs> but, he said when we lied, we got warts on our tongue. <laughs> but it's... Not just like, I mean, we do this in all kinds of areas of our life where all of a sudden we're in the middle of the situation and we decide somehow that God's word just isn't true enough. Now, we may not go, you know, we're not going to be that blunt. We're not going to be that blunt. God, you don't know what you're talking about. It's usually, well, in this case, I think that maybe I should do something else. But really what we're saying is, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to do it my way. We've all done it. We've all done it multiple times in various areas of our life, whatever those areas might be. For each, for each one of us, it's, it's different. Somebody who commits fornication or adultery don't, doesn't usually go in and say, today I think I'm going to go commit adultery. That's not usually their thought pattern. It's something where they make a lot of little mistakes and, and keep going, and the next thing they know, they found them, find themselves in a place where they obey God or disobey God, but they've followed the steps so far at this point, it's like, I'm just going to continue walking down this bad path. Bad path. Uh, the person who wanders into fornication doesn't usually just get up one day and say, well, I'm going to go have sex today. <laughs> it's usually you, you fall down that path, you move down that path, you, you, you're getting in a relationship that you're leaving God behind of or out of, and the next thing you know, you're in over your head and not, not, not able to follow God. This is true no matter what it is. The, the person who's a, who ends up getting drunk, you know, becoming a drunkard, doesn't usually wake up in the morning and say, I think I'm just going to drink myself into oblivion today. Not their first day anyway. Now they'll get to the place where it is just a habit and it's normal and that's the way they live, but that's not the way they started out in 99.9% in .9 of the cases. It's we get away from God and we stop thinking that he cares for us, that he has the answers, and, and start thinking that we have some answers. 
And as soon as we start thinking we have answers that are separate from God's word, we're in trouble. And this is why I said at the very beginning, we, we need to be bringing God into the situation immediately. We go right into prayer. Thessalonians tells us, in everything give thanks, in praying always. Most of us don't pray always, and it's hard to pray always, but that means to be in an attitude of any time there's a question, we go to God. God, help guide me in this situation. Usually it's pretty easy sometimes to look at a situation and say, what should I do? Because there's a lot of them, this is right and this is wrong. But you know, those aren't most of our problem areas. We go down the road and go, get, and God, do I do this or do I do this? God, do I take this job or do I take this job? Do I stay in this job or do I quit this job? Do I, you know, do I go visit this person who needs help or do I visit this other person that needs help? These decisions that have no right and wrong are the hardest decisions that we have, and we need to be in prayer a lot for those kind of decisions. You know, the decision on right and wrong, those, those should be easy ones. But the ones that are not right and wrong, that they are the hard ones. Like they're very hard because it's, there isn't, this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. God, it's what do you want me to do? Sometimes he'll tell, tell you to take the third path. You know? <laughs> Now, the disciples did that to, to, to God when they were trying to pick the, the, the apostle to replace uh, uh, Judas. They go, God, do we take Matthias or do we take, I can't remember the other guy. <laughs> Matthias was the one they picked. Now, but they gave God two choices and God said, well, I'm not taking either one of those. I want Paul. <laughs> How often do we do that kind of thing to God? God, should I do this or should I do this? And God said, why not this third one in the middle? Well, yeah, I didn't see that one. I wasn't thinking about that one, God. Uh, we need to be very careful how we deal with God and, and listen to what he wants. You know, and as I said, it's easy when it's a right or wrong. You know, do I go out and rob the bank or do I go out and get a job? Well, go out and get a job. <laughs> you know, the easy way may be to rob the bank, but <laughs> go get a job. Probably rob a store. Well, bank. You know, hardly ever get away with robbing a bank. Job but, but we understand what I'm saying on that, I hope. You know, so often we present God, you know, here's my, God, here's what I think we should be doing. Mm -hmm. what, 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 which choice should we go with? And God said, well, why don't we do my choice? And sometimes he matches up with us, but not usually. That's been my experience. Usually when I give God two choices and ask him which I should do, he throws out a third choice for me. Uh, verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. This is still coming, that all nations will come and worship him. Millennial kingdom, all nations will come to Israel to worship God. That is an amazing thought. All nations, everywhere, all people will come to, go, to, come to him to worship him. It's kind of amazing that the Jews have had this mentality of they are the only ones, nobody else is going to worship God unless they become Jews because it is quite clear all through the Old Testament that God said that all people would worship him. This is why we want to be careful of these very dangerous things because the Jews saying, we're God's people, you've got to worship people, God the way he told us, so everybody has to become Jews to, to worship God. And it never says that throughout here when he says all nations will come to him. It never says all nations will come to him and become Jews and follow him the way that, that he presented this. When we Remember when we were studying Exodus and Leviticus, God said that even the Gentiles could come into the temple and offer sacrifices to him. 
He wanted all people to be able to come. What did the Jews do? They made the tabernacle. They made the holy place. They made the, they made the place where the altars were. And then outside, especially when they got into the, to the temple, they had another court around it. And it was called the court of the Gentiles. Okay? You had the court of the Gentiles. And the women could go, the Jewish women could go in further than the Gentiles. And then the men could go in. Okay, they made all these distinctions between everybody, and God is said, God right from the very beginning said, all people could come and worship Him, and yet they kept putting these barriers up to the world, saying, unless you come the way we think you should be coming, you can't come. And God is saying, the only thing I want them to do is bring their sacrifice to me because I want to, I want to bless them. He said that they could come and give the burnt offering of total dedication. They could give the Thanksgiving offering, which allowed the priest to, and them to have their party with God. The, each one of these five sacrifices they could participate in. All of these things that, that God has been moving. The, we shared the other day with people, when you use the word Hebrew, you're not just referring to the Jews. You're referring to all the people of the race of Eber. He outlived Abraham, and he is the father of the Hebrew people, followers of one God through him. Abraham was not the only follower of one God in that region. Okay, The Midianites followed one God. Many other places followed one God. It was not, a, it was not that unusual. Over the years in Egypt, there were more than one pharaoh that followed one God, he didn't, they never had a dynasty that lasted very long because they were rejected because they, weren't so, they were different from everybody else. But we see over and over throughout history many different people that were followers of God, the one God, that didn't follow into Nimrod's multiple gods and, and false religious system that was in Babel. And we see this battle that's been going on between Satan and God for almost right, you know, before the flood, after the flood, through the representation of Nimrod, and through the righteous line, and we see this battle. And the, the, all, the false religious system of Nimrod and all of that still is the basis of all false religions today. And it's amazing that it's out there and still out there. And it's gonna come full circus, circle, not circus, circle. <laughs> Uh, God took the people as they were building the tower and he mixed up their languages. Why? So that they would spread out and quit trying to follow the, 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 the multiple religions and everything. It was a border, a, a blockage of what they were trying to do. We have overcome the language barrier and we're starting to see this whole idea of one world, one religion coming back together just as Babel was all about. One world, one government, let's make ourselves and exalt ourselves against God. And we're seeing that happening again. We've come full circle. And it means that we're close to the end times that, because of it. Be ready for what's going to happen. We've been seeing this. I've been talking, it's been on my heart a lot. I think we're awfully close because it's been on my heart that we need to prepare ourselves for what's coming. The, the end is coming and we need to be ready for it. In Noah's day, everyone did what was right in their own eyes was what God said. And he judged the world because of it. 
we have people, the majority of this world, doing what is right in their own eyes, claiming that good is bad and bad is good. Now, that's amazing when you start talking, especially some of these college-educated people who, you know, whatever you think is what's right and, you know, if you think, you know, bad stuff is good and good stuff is bad, is, you know, it is amazing to talk to people and see how confused they are. You know, you know they'll, they'll say one thing even though they don't believe it. They'll tell you there's no right or wrong. And I've told you, I used to love, I used to have so much fun on the college campus when I'd meet these people telling me there's no right and wrong. And I'd walk away with their keys. <laughs> and they'd go, what are you doing? I'm going, well, I've got a car and a house that I've got to go sell. They go, what are you talking about? I go, well, I just got this nice new car. I got a new car in my possession and, and a house. I need to go sell them. You can't do that. I go, why? Because it's, it's mine. It's not right. I'm going, quit telling me you think you don't know that there's right and wrong. Because as soon as you challenge that right and that mentality, they would always admit that there's right and wrong, and that they know that there's right and wrong. Only when they need it. It's right. Yeah. It's only when it's good for them that there's no right or wrong. Uh, it's only when it when it, it makes makes them look good and, and, and knowledgeable. Verse ten. For you are great and do wondrous things. You are God alone. Do we really realize how great our God is and the wondrous things that he does? This is one of the things that we need to keep looking at and keep in our forethoughts. God has placed, many times he said this sentence or he says place the landmarks. The children of Israel were to make these monuments frequently where it says, when your children sees this big tower of rocks and asks you, what was this about? That you would tell them the story. When they would come to Passover, they would tell them the story of the Exodus and of God killing the first, firstborns. An amazing thing that the Jews held together when they did not have a country that they held together essentially who they were. How did they do that? Because they kept reiterating the stories to their children of how God delivered them and brought them into the promised land. And it was kept, you know, all is up, you know, that God is our, God is special. We're his special people. We as Christians need to do a better job with our own families on this as well. Sharing with our families that God sent his son. We don't do enough of it with our own kids often enough and our grandkids and our nieces and nephews, much less the rest of the world. And this is a sad state of affairs. God says, train up your children, and when they are old, they will not depart. Most of us don't train our children up well enough and watch them depart. Human nature to try to make others worse than you and stand, stand better. We had the whole movement of Hitler and the Aryan race trying to purify the, the human race by getting rid of all other people that weren't of the Aryan race. Not just, not just white, uh, but you had to be that whole... Germantic race to be be correct. We look at what we do and what we see, and we go forward with what's happening, and we see God making his movements, and he's saying he does wondrous things. Verse 11, teach me your ways, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now, to be able to come to God and say, God, teach me. More importantly, we want him to soften our hearts so that we learn from him as he's teaching us. 
Have you, have you ever been taught and not learned? The heartbreaking thing for all teachers is when they pour their heart and soul, especially for Christian teachers, you pour your heart and soul in your lessons and then you watch people do just what you, what you taught them not to do. And it's like, oh, I wasted my time, God. David here is making this prayer, God, teach me. He should be actually saying, open my ears as well. But he does say, unite me. Unite, unite me to the, what I'm being taught. This should be our prayer all the time. It is so easy to spend time learning and learning and learning for learning's sake and not applying it to our life. And we want to be careful of that. We need to make sure we apply what we learn. And we do it often in the Bible. We get all this kind of trivia knowledge. You can tell them all the stories in the Bible and all the different things about the Bible and then not apply his words to our life. Well, you taught us that's wisdom is applied knowledge. Verse 12, I will praise you, O Lord, my God. With all my heart, I will glory, uh, glorify your name forever and ever. God is wanting all of us. He wants our entire heart, mind, soul, strength. He doesn't want part of us. We as humans have this great capacity to say, okay, God, uh, I'm all yours on Sunday morning. And then we walk away from him the rest of the week and say, okay, God, here I am. You know, uh, I was yours yesterday, but today is work. I'm at work. You, you stay out of my life at work. Sometimes businessmen who are striving to get to the top of the business world don't want God in their life during their work days because they're willing to do anything it takes to get to the top of the world, and that means they know they're doing things God told them not to. They get done with work and say, okay, God, now it's family time. I'll, I you know, really don't want you in my family. We're just going to have fun together as a family. We're going to go camping or whatever it might be. We're just going to entertain ourselves. But God, you stay out of that as well. You know, we have this great capacity to kind of put on different hats and say, God, you're not, you know, you're, you're, not, you're my Sunday. <laughs> you're my Sunday, maybe Wednesday night, uh, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know. But we have this sometimes problem of trying to keep him out of our life. And when we bring him into every aspect of our life, the world looks at us as if we're very strange. What do you mean you can't make this business deal because God, it won't, won't glorify God? Who's God? To, who, you know, what's God got to do with the business world? You'll hear this oftentimes with people. You know, why can't you have this relationship? You know, who, well, you know, what, what is this God of yours that controls your relationships? The world does not understand that, and they will have problems with us moving with God in, in all areas of our life. And they will make fun of, they will deride, they will even attack. I've seen it. When, when I stood up to bosses and said, no, I can't do that because God, it does not honor God. And, and I've had them ask me, well, what's God have to do with anything? And they go, he's got everything to do with everything I do in my life. The integrity I have is, as your store manager is all based in who God is. And ethics, right? And you like that part of it, so don't ask me to violate what he's asking. You know. But do we always yeah, take those kind of... Yeah, they love the honesty part unless, it, unless it's not what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, you know, but this is, do we bring God into every part of our life, or do we try to separate him from it? Unfortunately, oftentimes we try to separate him from it, otherwise we wouldn't sin. Every time we walk into sin, we have separated God from that portion of our life. 
and walk away from what we say that, we, that we're with him all the time. Very important for us, how much do we trust him? How much do we apply every bit of his walk with us in every aspect of our life? And believe me, I know how easy it is to try to exclude God from certain portions of our life. You know, and we, when we do it, oftentimes, you know, well, it just doesn't seem, if I tell the truth in this situation, I might get punished or get in trouble. And so we don't tell the truth. Even though we know God says tell the truth. And we don't always follow him with our heart, soul, mind, strength. Every aspect of our life needs to be given over to him. And oftentimes we'll say we're doing it and we don't really do it. And it's a sad, sad thing when we do that. And he says, I will glory in your name forever. Verse 13, why? For great is your mercy toward me. You have delivered my soul from the lowest hell. God wants to deliver us. He wants to give us mercy. Not, and what is mercy? It is not receiving what we deserve. God does not want to give us what we deserve. Now, if we tell him that that's what we want, he'll make sure that we get, you know, that, that that happens. But his desire is to give us mercy. His desire is for his son to come to this world and have and us to accept that and become his children. So then he can give us grace and give us all the benefits of Christ and heaven because of what his mercy has bought. And he says, you've delivered me from the lowest hell the abode of the dead. And we want to keep it always in remembrance. Hell was not created for humans. It was created for Lucifer and the demons that followed him. It is their prison. God just uses it for us if we want to reject him. And we always remember that it is that prison. Verse 14, O God, the proud are risen against me. The assemblies of the violent men have sought after me, after my soul, and have not set you before them. The enemies do not look at God. <laughs> you know, it's amazing that the, how God has used the wicked to discipline his children. You know, Annie kind of was, was naming a few of them. You know, he used Nebuchadnezzar to bring the Jews into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice man. <laughs> okay, he hated the Jewish people. He force-marched them from Israel to Babylon because he didn't want them praying to their God and having their God come up and stand against him. He did evil in, to them. And yet, God used him to discipline his people. Even more, he used Daniel to give Nebuchadnezzar the message from God. And then we find Nebuchadnezzar softening his heart toward God and becoming a follower of God. It's amazing. You see Darius and Cyrus coming along and sending the Jewish people back. Why? Because Cyrus has shown where God put his name in there in the scriptures. 120 years before he was born. At a time, written at a time when his nation wasn't even a nation that was worth anything. That's what's before they had any control over the Jews. <laughs> and he's shown, here's your name. <laughs> You're to send the people back. 
and he accepted it because it was an older scripture and an older older writing that his name was written in. Can you imagine if your name was written in the Bible and it says you were going to do something and and you were going to be in charge of all this stuff and you're like you're how did he know how was this known? God knows his people. He would certainly make you aware of whoever told that person that was God. Mm -hmm. And a God that I never heard of. And I wanted to know better. Yeah. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you know that this is the name that God told Moses was his name when Moses said, God, I want to see you. And God said, you can only see the backside of me. And he put him in the cleft of the hill, put his, of the mount of the hill, put his hand over his, his face. These are the words that God used. I'm a God full of compassion, full of mercy, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and truth. I love this word, plenteous in mercy and truth. He is not, you know, he is not what a lot of people sit there and, and think. You know, a lot of people have this vision of God up in heaven with a great big baseball bat waiting for you to show your head so he can pound you over the head with the baseball bat until you come into submission. It would be easy if we did. It would almost be easier, wouldn't it? But that's not who he is. You know, he is not a God that's saying, go stay in that hole because you're because I'm going to beat you if you pop out of the... You know, he's not playing whack-a-mole with us. You know, he's saying, come, let me be merciful to you. Let me show you my compassion. Let me take your hand and walk with you through these trials. Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He's right there wanting to lead us. All through the scriptures, he's leading. He led the children of Israel, but quite literally, with the tower of fire and, 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 and pillar of uh, cloud. He led them very literally through the wilderness. But all through the scriptures, he's saying, I am wanting to love you. I want to lead you. And yet we want to say somehow we don't trust God. You know, he's going to lead us into really bad areas. You know, and this really shows our attitude toward God at times. You know, there's people who don't want to turn to God and serve God because they're afraid he's going to send them to someplace they don't want to go. You know, one thing I have learned over the years, God has never sent me someplace that I don't want to go. Now, I may not have wanted to go there when I first started the trip, but he will change my heart to make me want to go wherever he wants me to go. This is important to understand. He's not going to force us to do things that we don't want to do because he is full of mercy. He is full of compassion. Now, we might not want to do, do it at the beginning, but he'll change our heart. And I've shared... You know, when I first got married, I used to, I used, my prayers used to be change my wife, and I've learned over the years, change me. Because he always changed me. Does that mean he didn't change Lynn over those years? He probably did. I'm sure he did. But because he changed my heart, I wasn't focused on what he had to change in her anymore. 
He changed me. But it's the same heart that he's put in me as a pastor for this church. God, there's people who need to change, but change me toward them. And in the process, he'll change the people who are being ministered to. But it's up to him how he's going to do it. But I just need him to change the way I look at people and soften my heart toward them and make me love them where they're at, just as he loves us where we're at. Doesn't mean that he leaves us where we're at. He will change us, but he loves us where we're at and says, just follow. Just take these steps with me. God wants us to learn to do that with one another. We get into great unity when we learn to just let them let people stand and fall before God and not sit there and judge them. You know, one of the things I've seen is, you know, we usually judge people because God has shown us how to live our Christian walk and we judge people by how God showed us to live. And we look at people and go, well, you're just not following my list of rules that God told me. And as I've said a couple of times, they're also taking their list of rules that God told them to walk by and looking at you and saying, you're not living by, you're not living by the rules of God that God gave me to learn live by. And if we all just lived by the rules that God gave us to live by, we'd be a lot better and let them live by their list. Now, if somebody is going out and committing fornication or lying or, or stealing, yes, those are places where we know that, yes, that is wrong. But you know, how many times do we judge people over things that aren't a thou shalt not? You know, we live so close to places where you can gamble, and there are people that are very hard on you shall not gamble, and you're, if you gamble, you're sinning. There's a number of people that say who it's not that big a deal, and they can go and spend 20 bucks and gamble and not, not feel bad about it. And both think the other is wrong. <laughs> and you know what? Both are wrong if they're trying to apply it to somebody else's life. Because I have not come across a single verse that says, thou shalt not gamble. Now, is it a great idea to go out and gamble? Probably not. You're wasting money. Is it totally wrong to gamble if you can keep it under control and not, and not get addicted to it? I have no problem with that either. Because if you're going to stand and answer to God, if you go out and waste $5,000 of God's money, you might have to answer to God why you threw $5,000 away. But the idea is if you can go out and you're going to go entertain yourself, you know, and you were going to spend the money anyway for entertainment, it's not that big a deal. But this also goes to where Paul was talking to the, to the Christians in Corinth. Some of them had serious problems with buying meat from the butcher at the bottom of the hill from the, from the temple that was offered to the, sac, to the false gods. And Paul's attitude was, who cares? They're just, just stone that they put this food in front of. But he also said, even though you have the strength to be in the freedom to go eat that meat, don't do it in front of a brother or sister who will be offended because they don't have that same strength of freedom. We don't use our freedom in an area of our life to hurt a weaker Christian. We do that frequently, unfortunately. You know, well, you, you know, if you were just as spiritual as I was, uh, am, you would not have problems with this because hey it's just you know it's no big deal and they're looking at man you're just so loose and you know and have no standards and again we take our list of what God has shown us and we kind of judge each other by our list we shouldn't be but we should also be willing to put our list aside if it's going to offend somebody put our freedom aside and not do it just for the sake of the weaker 
weaker brother or sister and allow them the, the freedom to grow over time and not just say, well, if you were just more spiritual, you'd be able to <laughs> see what I know. For us as people who've been walking with God for a long time, we have some freedoms that the, the new Christian doesn't necessarily have. But you know, from their side, if you remember when you were a young Christian, you wanted everything to be so spiritual and, and you looked at some of these older Christians saying, man, you know, they've gotten so far away from God, they can just do anything. And we have these problems of judging one another. We need to be careful of those because it is so easy to judge one another. Our flesh wants to do that. And when we judge one another, we damage people. We hurt those people. And we're told over and over again, don't do it. Don't do it. God is full of compassion. He has, you know, he has no problem with people learning and being slow at learning. He's also heartbroken at how slow they are learning, but he has no problem giving them the freedom to learn. If we think about some of the things that we have taken time to learn and how long it took us to learn some things, it's amazing some things we learn almost instantly and it's easy to learn. But all of us have other areas in our life where we've been, maybe we're still struggling with it, knowing that it's wrong, and it may be 30, 40, 50, 60 years that we've been struggling with it, and there's other places where we instantly had deliverance and, and learning. And every one of us have different areas of our life that are that way. Each person has areas that they've learned quickly. It's been amazing. I've watched some people get saved and almost their entire life gets turned upside down overnight and they seem to have everything in, 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 in order. Now I know they don't because you watch them over the years and you watch how much of their life isn't in order. And then you've got others who have just a few small things get in order right away, and then they spend a long time as well learning to put their life in order. It would be wonderful if God just walked in and said, here you go, you now have a perfect life. Yeah. You know, we say that, but you know, Jesus had a perfect life, and he was hated by everybody. Can you imagine if God did give you a perfect life? You would be hated by everybody around you, because you would always make the right decision. You would always make decisions that didn't fit into what they wanted to do. And you would not fit in with this world. Probably wouldn't fit in with other Christians. God is full of mercy and compassion. Verse 16 says, Oh, turn unto me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaiden. We need total dependence on God to walk with him. We in our own strength, our own flesh, cannot walk the way God wants us to walk consistently. This is where we, I talk often about, you know, sometimes we take this whip and chair approach to our flesh and we put it in subjection. The flesh will always come back with a vengeance when that force isn't there. If you, if you think about this, the the lion tamers and the big cat tamers, they never let their guard down. Even though they trust their animals, they know that they are wild and they know that they need to be on guard always because that cat may still turn on them. And every once in a while we hear the story where they let their guard down and the cat turns on them and they get mauled. The flesh is waiting to do that with us. 
If we want to try to discipline our flesh, it is waiting for that opportunity to come and strike back. That is why God says he needs to crucify it. He needs to crucify our flesh and kill it. Against us. Because we're trying to follow God. If we're trying to discipline our flesh and say we're going to follow God in our own strength, our flesh is waiting for every opportunity to strike back and, and take us away from God. Because the flesh cannot be completely disciplined and tamed. It wants to rule. And that is why Jesus said it needs to be crucified. I crucify my flesh, or he crucifies my flesh more correctly, because it needs to die. It needs to be put to death so that we can live in the righteousness of Christ. Verse 17, show me a token for good, and they which hate me may that they that hate me may see it and be ashamed, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The idea of a token. I love this word token. It's an item that represents something. And if you've ever watched medieval movies where the where the knight goes into his competition and the jousting and he rides up to the girl. She gives him a token, usually a scarf or something, and they wear that token saying, I'm now fighting not for myself, but for the princess or whoever the, the maid is that they're trying to win their heart. The token was the outward symbol of who you were serving for. We see it in the old stories frequently. Those, all those women that went into the king and spent the night took something with them that was special to them. Was it a token? Basically. Esther didn't take anything, but did she? She took she what she took what the Chamberlain told her to take, which he she was assuming number one, you're a man, you know what will please the man, and number two, you've known the king long enough to know what will will please the king. But she took in some form of token. Jewelry oftentimes is a token. Our wedding rings are a token. They're a symbol that I am married and that I am going to keep my vows. And it's what at least of what it's supposed to mean. Yep. It doesn't always mean that with people, but it is a token. It is that exchange of, of things. People who wear a cross and live up to what the cross means, that, that cross to them, if they're really being honest, is a token of I'm a follower of Christ. Tokens are these idea of they keep, it's a keepsake. It's something that shows that I am, I belong to somebody else or I'm serving somebody else. And David saying, give me a token of you so that I can show it to my enemy that I am yours. You're my protector. You're my, you're the one that I'm following and that they will be ashamed for their attacking on him. Jesus said, you will know that they will know you're my disciples by your love one for another. Love is a major token for Christians, one for another and for the world. When we really apply God's love and they see God's love standing above everything else, it is the major token of Christianity is his love. We can hold our Bibles all day. We can have our crosses all day. But when we don't love, especially one another, 
it really says a lot of things to the world. Well, you're just like everybody else. You, know, you say these things, but you don't live them. And God, David's saying, God, give me the token that I can stand. That the token for real token for us is the love we get in Christ by being crucified flesh at the foot of the cross. The cross is everything. God's blood is everything. Because that is what brings us into him. That is what crucifies our flesh and allows us to live in that love with the token that shows this is who we are. I am no longer mine. I belong to God. And every part of my being is to belong to him. This is not easy. I'm not going to criticize anybody who wants to wear a cross. That's between them and God. And but I do understand why some people have trouble with the cross and, and what it looks like to some people. The cross is used, you know, people have used the cross to present the gospel and, and have people ask questions. Uh, you've got people who wear the ichthyos for the same reason. You've got people who, you know, a lot of businessmen movement in the early, uh, late 19, uh, 1990s and, and 2000s where a lot of businessmen were putting a fish hook on their uh, suit coats to try to get people to ask them what's the fish hook about and it's, Fisher of Man, you know, all of this stuff comes and it's just a tool that people use to uh, draw a question. I love the bumper sticker that has the great, not of this world, uh, N-O-T-H, you know, and it is all kind of intertwined in everything and it literally means not of this world and it gives people a reason to say, what is that? Uh, and we all really need to either have something in our life that makes people ask why we're different or a little hook like that is not a big deal to bring. Most people know what the cross is, so they don't usually question it anymore. Uh, most people now know what an ichthyus is, so it doesn't draw much question. So that's why they're coming up with these little like fish hooks, you know, the not of this world sign. WWJD was one that they used for a long time to, to draw people, but everybody now knows that that means what would you, well, not everybody, but the majority of the people now know what that means, so it doesn't draw the questions it used to. But when it first came out in the 80s, it was like, wow, what does that mean? Oh, that's what would Jesus do? You know, and it opened up your door to, to preach, you know, to give the gospel. So we need things to help us share the gospel sometimes. Because most of us don't just run out to tell people, hey, you need to know Jesus, you know? You know, and it still works, you know, carrying tracks around and just handing out tracks to people can work. Whatever it takes for us to be able to get people to question and ask questions or if we're bold enough, just start the conversations. You know, telemarketers are in trouble if they call Annie's house because they're going to be, you know, she'll start talking about what church you go to and do you know Jesus? And she, she turns it on them real quick because they can't, they can't just hang up on her anymore. Than, you know, because they've got to kind of listen and try to get through their script that she won't let them get through because she's telling them about Jesus. What do we do? How do we share the gospel? How often do we share the gospel? Mark's always talking about how he's sharing the gospel with his drivers as, a, as he's got a captive audience between here and, here and Kingman that can't get rid of him and all the different people. You know, who do we share the gospel with? How do we share it? One of the guys that used to do the men's breakfast at College Park, he would, he would go shopping on Friday. It took him about four hours to do the shopping for the breakfast because he would be talking to every man that he saw at the grocery store and inviting them to the men's breakfast the next day and sharing the gospel with them. That was just his way of ministering. How often do we share the gospel? What, what do we use to get the gospel started? It's important that we share the gospel with people. And it's sad that most Christians do not share the gospel. 
it's sad that most people have not had the privilege of leading somebody to Christ. Bill Bright said that if every Christian led just one person to the Lord and those people led one people to the Lord, we'd have the world evangelized in less than a year. We've been busy trying to evangelize the world for over 2,000 years. And we're not very close to having it evangelized yet. It is such a privilege when you share the gospel and somebody responds and they actually ask Christ into their heart and you watch their eyes light up. You see the burden that they're carrying come off of their shoulders and, they, and you see the lightness that comes upon them and then you start trying to, working on discipling them. It is a wonderful place to be. It's a wonderful thing to see. The most important thing is to also remember most people when they give the gospel don't ask, it, they ask people if they want to know God. They don't encourage them to, to make that prayer. Most people, most Christians are very bad salesmen. They sell Jesus and then they don't ask them if they want to buy. I, I've actually had a salesman that did that. They had me totally sold. I wanted what they wanted and they never asked me to buy it. They never closed the sale. They was like, oh, well, you didn't, I didn't jump up and say I want to buy it. So they walked out the door and didn't get a sale. Well, number one, I never ask anybody, do they go to church? Because I don't care. I want to know if they know Jesus. But even then, even when somebody tells me, yes, I know Jesus, or yes, I'm a Christian, my follow-up question is, what does that mean? Because there are many people who think they're Christian, and what does that mean to them? Well, I try to follow, I read the Bible each day, I try to, I try to obey the Bible. Or I go to church. A Hindu is going to tell you I'm a child of God. The Muslim is going to tell you I'm a child of God. No matter what question you use to start the conversation, the next question has to be, what does that mean to you? How do you go to get, where will you spend eternity? Whatever question it is you want to start the conversation with, you need to find out what does it mean. Well, I think... Because we're, we're in a position now where if you even ask somebody, are, you know, do they know God, you better define what God you're talking about. But a Muslim's going to agree with you that there's only one God in this world, but he's not following the same God. But this is the key to everything. We need to make sure the next question, no matter how we open the conversation is, what does that mean to you? And get them to talk to you. And give them a respectful listen. As, as, because if you listen to them, they're more likely to listen to you. Because if you talk to a Muslim, they're going to tell you that, they, that they're following the one God. They're following the moon God Allah, not, not the God of the universe that created everything. But, you know, they're following a God. Believe me, because we are sitting in a time where there is no absolute right or wrong in most people's minds. You need to find out what people mean. You know, I've, I've shared with you, in the 70s and 80s, when you asked somebody if they were a Christian in America, the answer was almost always, of course I'm a Christian, I'm an American. Uh, it was very popular. I've been, I've been knocking on doors and witnessing to people on the street for a long time. And so you need to be able to probe into what does it mean. Yes, I'm a follower of God. What God are you following? Okay. I've had people tell me, well, I don't have to come to church to worship God. I'm going, that's absolutely right. But when you're on that lake, are you worshiping God? Can, can I worship God on the lake? Absolutely, I can worship God on the lake. Can I worship him on the top of the mountain? Absolutely, I can worship him on the top of the mountain. But the key to this is always, who is it that you're following? What Jesus are you following? What God are you following? What does it mean to be? How do you get to heaven? I like the question, where will you spend eternity? 
because they will start telling you, well, I'm going to go to heaven, of course. Well, what qualifies you to go to heaven? Well, I, I, I'm a good person. I don't lie and cheat and steal, and I try, I try to be a good person. Well, that's not the right criteria to get to heaven. Talk to these people. Well, I'm on my 19th life. I'm trying to get it right. <laughs> oh, well, tell me about these other lives. Hey, you know, are, you, are you getting, you know, I love this idea of, of reincarnation, that you keep doing it until you get better, and you look at this world, and we keep getting worse. Yeah. That tells you a lot about the idea of reincarnation. So the question is always needs to be, what does it mean? And listen, give them a, give them a moment to, to speak to you. Because we have the answers, of, but if you're trying to force those answers down their throat and you're not even willing to listen to what they've said in the first place, they're not going to listen to you at all. It's very important to give them a moment to share, you know, well, I believe in it. Well, you think we're getting better as we're getting reincarnated. Listen, tell me a little bit about that. What is the authority that you're basing that on? You know, and they'll tell, they'll tell us whatever book it is that they're, they're basing it on. And go, do you think we're getting better as people being reincarnated? You know, and you make them start thinking about these things. And then they go, can I tell you what God says in the Word? And then we can go give them the Romans road. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God commended his love toward us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we call upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. We just give him the gospel. And then go, would you like to know this God who, who did everything for you so that you can go to heaven and spend eternity with the God who did everything for you? And when they say no, that's fine. If they say yes, so let's, let's pray. Then we encourage them to go to church and talk to their pastor or go somewhere else. Let's close in prayer. We went over again. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to go with us. Lord, give us the, the love for you. Give us the opportunity to share you with others. Help us to be able to bring more into your kingdom and then to disciple them to follow you. And we just thank you, Jesus. Amen.